Next Sunday, the church celebrates the solemnity of Christ the King, which marks the end of the liturgical year. And so in this penultimate Sunday, all the readings speak of judgment in some form or another. And, you know, when we think of judgment, you know, and especially in the Catholic imagination, I think of an episode of The Sopranos I saw many years ago uh, about this Italian gangster family. And uh, uh, the son, Tony Soprano, the gangster, his son is getting confirmed. And after the confirmation, uh, Tony catches him in the garage smoking pot with a bunch of his friends. He tells his wife, and she comes into the garage. (laughs) She says, can't you be a good Catholic for 15 freaking minutes? And uh, I think that's the image we often have in mind, or something like that, in terms of judgment. I think it's what I think of, Mrs. Mrs. Soprano. But I think it's, it's a topic, I, I think it isn't preached on a lot, it makes people very uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's, it's something important to, to tackle, especially theologically. Because one of the questions that I get with relative frequency, and I think it's one of the sort of most powerful questions out there is, how is it possible to say that God is love and God loves everybody and God judges people and some go to hell? How do, how do those four facts fit together? And I think, I think that they do, and I think ultimately they're all rooted in the first fact that God is love. And actually everything else follows from that. Um, but it, it takes a little work to see that. So that, that's what I want to talk about tonight in the homily. I think the, the first part to understanding the answer to this, this riddle is to understand what does it mean to be in heaven? You know, we know, we talk about, you know, it's perfect happiness, light happiness and peace, eternal rest, eternal banquet. You know, but, but what actually goes on? Well, Scripture speaks of us seeing God face to face. We're looking at him, we see him, we encounter him in some way. When you see someone face to face, you know, there's this, they're right there. This is personal encounter. Okay. And it's often called in theology the beatific vision, the beautiful vision. And St. Thomas Aquinas says that at the very heart of the experience of heaven is this vision. We, we see, or he might say, we understand God in our intellect. It's like, I get it. I get him. I see him as he is, and it just... It all kind of floods in and, and makes sense. Now, in some sense, that might seem sort of dry. You think about, oh, the, you know, okay, the beatific vision is sort of happening in the, the intellect. Okay, what is this, like an eternal calculus class? We're always learning something? No. And more importantly, where's, where's love in all this? Okay, so St. Thomas says that it's not a step-by-step learning when we see God, but the beatific vision is just seeing someone, just seeing him as we are. It's this intuition. We just sort of get him. And love is crucial for two reasons. First of all, love leads us into the beatific vision. It's something you get because you want it. And why do you want to see God? Because you love him. Okay. So, you love God and that, that draws you towards heaven. And once, when you, when you have the experience of seeing someone you love, you know, maybe they've been away for a while or something like that, and you see them again, it's a happy experience. So love draws you towards the person that you love, you see them, 
and then you delight in the fact that you get to be with them. And so love is crucial because without love, you couldn't actually enjoy the vision of God. Not only you wouldn't get there, and then you wouldn't be happy about it. So this is, this is St. Thomas, I, I, Thomas's idea of how the beatific vision works. And then once the resurrection of the dead happens and we get our bodies back, guess what? The body gets to, it gets the spillover effects from the soul. So it participates in that, in that happiness. Okay. So heaven, heaven requires four things. So first of all, God has to love us. We have to love God. Then we see God. And then we enjoy God. Those are the four constitutive parts of heavenly delight. Okay. And I think part of the difficulty in, the, in this, this question that I posed, you know, how is it that, you know, God can judge and people go to hell? How does that happen? How does that fit in? I think where, where the problem comes in is that when we think of heaven, we forget some of those pieces along the way. Something gets dropped and the vision of heaven gets distorted. So I think one example of this is when we only take the first and the last. Okay, God loves me. And then eternal delight, feeling really good all the time, feeling perfectly happy. And that's what heaven is. God loves me and he makes me feel happy. Minus the understanding of God, minus our loving him. And I think this vision of heaven actually represents um, the idea of heaven as awesome drug trip. Because what do drugs do? They, they provide a a feeling of happiness and delight minus relationship, minus real love. And that's part of where the evil comes from. It, it creates a simulation of heaven without the, real, without the real thing. And so if that's how we view heaven, you know, then Jesus goes from being my friend to being my drug dealer. He gives me stuff that makes me feel good. I don't really love him. Uh, and that's just the way, you know, but who cares, you know, because I feel good, and that's all that's important. But that's not heaven. And, and you see how that's not compatible with a God who is love. A God who is love would not want that kind of experience for us. God would want us to actually experience his love and delight in that and delight in his goodness and love him in return. I think another way that <clears throat> this, can go, this can go wrong is when we, when we only have number one and number three. So, all right, God loves me, and therefore I'm going to have the, the vision of God, I'm going to be with him. I don't love him, so I don't want to be with him. Uh, but, you know, look, if heaven is good for me, if this is, if this is the only thing that can make me happy, well, God should take me in there anyway, you know, drag me kicking and screaming through the pearly gates if necessary. And you have this, in some sense, like you have this experience of love. When I was growing up, I got sick. Mom says, here's some cough syrup. It's disgusting, and I don't want to take it. It's good for you. Take your cough syrup. So you take it. Okay. And it's unpleasant, but it, it makes us better. And that's what, that's what a loving mother does. You know, she gives the medicine and makes it go down even if it doesn't taste very good. So why is it in heaven like that? And I think the problem there is that heaven is not medicine. Heaven's not medicine. The experience of God is not medicine. It's the happy state that you achieve after you recover from the illness of sin. So 
after on this earth, you know, after conversion and receiving grace, after doing penance, after going through purgatory, after all, all, everything that's wrong is sort of fixed and purged away, heaven is the state that results when there's nothing interfering with that loving relationship with the Lord. So it's not meant to be a medicine. It's meant to be sort of the, the fruit. It's the result of a loving encounter. And when that love, I mean, God's love is never absent, but when our love is absent, I think it results in two sort of possible distorted pictures of how we can view heaven. The first distorted picture is one where God sort of forces himself intimately on the very depths of my soul without my consent, because that's, that's the whole point of love, that it has to be freely given and freely chosen. And so do we want God to, you know, force himself on us in the most, literally the most intimate way possible at the very depths of our soul? I don't think that's real love. And if God was really loving, would he do that to us? The other thing, so that's one distortion. God forces himself on us. The other image is we force ourselves on God. God should take us to heaven, even if we don't love him, so we can be happy even if it's a miserable experience for him. And you might say, oh, he's God, he's big and tough, he can take it, it'll be no problem. And there's a way that's true, but that's not a very loving sort of thing. You know, I mean, if you think, of, you know, if you had a, uh, you know, uh, say a sister, something, a best friend, you know, who got married and was in this, you know, trapped in this horribly abusive relationship and you confronted the other person, and you said, hey, what are you doing to my friend? And he said, ah, she's a tough girl, she can take it. What would you think? Like, how dare you? That's not love. And so if God is really love, God wants to be loved in return. And just as he will not force himself on the unwilling, so he will not allow the unwilling to force themselves on him. And so that's, that brings us, those sort of distorted images, I think, bring us to the real sense of how God can be love itself, and yet there's also judgment, and there's also hell. So in terms of judgment, what does that, what does that mean? And in the Christian vision, at the end of the day, all judgment is, is just simply the revealing of who we are. It's the revealing of ourselves. There's no sort of pretense, no mirage, no putting on a show, or airs. It's just we go to God as we are. And so that, that reveals things, both, in a sense, good and bad. I want, I want to do a little sort of thought experiment with you, so I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that at Hope College now, everyone, by some mystical sort of grace, is able to see the heart of everyone else that they know when they meet them. The good and the bad. So all those around you, all your classmates, those you live with, teammates, they're able to see who you really are, what you really think of them in the depths of your soul, and you can see what they think of you. Just think about that.
Okay, open your eyes. I think in that sort of scenario, you probably imagined encounters both good and bad. Maybe you met people and you, you realized, man, I never, I never knew how much so-and-so cared about me, you know, how much they valued my time, my friendship, you know, something very, really delightful, you know, and, and pleasant. On the other hand, it might be a revealing of things that are not pleasant, you know, that, and people get hurt and, you know, because, oh, yeah, that person I was pretending to be nice to was spreading all those rumors about and now they know about it, you know, oops. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid that person so that they don't see my heart, you know? So I'm just going to make sure I don't sit with them at Phelps. And so when you think of it in, in that sort of judgment in that sort of way as a revealing of truth, you kind of see what's going to happen, that, that some people are going to be drawn to each other in a new way because they find out that there's, there's a goodness there that they hadn't known before. And there's this sort of fuller sort of attraction. And in other cases, wow, there's a badness. I didn't know that person actually didn't like me. I didn't know they were faking it. Or I'm ashamed that, that I was pretending to like them or to be their friend. So you run in the other direction. And so at judgment, you know, it's true that God does sort of pronounce innocent and guilt, you know, as, as he sees it. But it's not just as he sees it. It's as everybody sees it. We see it. We see how we're judged. And that's why there's this, there's this line from the second chapter of Wisdom, which was a reading earlier this semester. And it's talking about the, the wicked are plotting against the just man. And they say, the just man reproaches us for our transgressions of the law and charges us with violations of our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and styles himself a child of the Lord. To us, he is a censure of our thoughts. Merely to see him is a hardship for us because his life is not like that of others, and different are his ways. He judges us debased. He holds aloof from our paths as from things impure. So what you see is this wisdom, this repulsion from the good. Like they, I mean, in, in wisdom, they want to kill the guy just to get away from it. But the, the basic feeling is, I don't want to be around this. I don't want to be around goodness. And that's why... When God pronounces judgment, you know, you love me, you don't, whatever the case is, those who don't, don't have to be dragged out of heaven. And this is the image that Dante gives in the Inferno. A bunch of people who've been judged and they're going to hell and they're waiting for the boat to cross the river Styx. And they look across the river and they see the torments of hell and all the people suffering. And the boat comes to pick them up and take them to the land of suffering. And what do they do? They run into the boat. Because that's easier than going in the other direction, than encountering the love of God, which they flee from. And so I think what all this goes back to, you know, and Jesus, Jesus warns about judgment in Scripture. Why? You know, he says that things that are hidden will be revealed. He's not doing it out of hatred. If it was hatred, he wouldn't have warned us and he would have just enjoyed the show. Um, he, he warns us because he wants us to know that, that the truth will be revealed and, and he wants to love us and he wants to forgive our sins. That's the amazing thing about it, that no matter what we've done, God is still willing to love us, still willing to take us back, but we have to bring that to him. And so ultimately, heaven and hell, judgment, all of these things are connected to the fact that God is love. 
God is love, and he loves all of us. And there is nothing in the world that a person who loves wants more than to be loved.